Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. This is episode 114, where I'm going to pepper Coach Connor with a bunch of questions and see how smart he is. You ready? I am ready. And let's also point out this will hopefully be our last Q&A that's just you and I. Yeah. We've been getting tons of questions, so apparently this is quite popular. But uh, seeing as it's so popular, we are hoping to bring in multiple coaches and have kind of a roundtable Q&A in the future. So look forward to that. Uh, hope that's going to really up the quality. It won't just be hearing from me in the future. Yeah. And we did reach out to some people, but lo and behold, people are traveling right now. Wow. Isn't that crazy? I mean, they're traveling solo into the woods, but things are, are things getting slightly back to normal, maybe in some small ways? I can tell you things were weird here in <laughs> Boulder yesterday. Things they shut down weird. Pearl Street and it was just a giant party on Pearl Street. What? Like this was, had this happened a year ago, you would have looked at it and gone, that's a lot of people. Wow. What the heck was that all about? I don't know. And it wasn't an event. It was just, they, they, so when you get to the end of the mall, there's, you get all the, the restaurants that are on the actual road. They blocked off the road from traffic and just put tables all over the road for all the different restaurants and coffee oh, shops. Wow. Wow. Well, things are changing, let's say. Yep. Maybe not normal. Probably won't be totally normal for a long time, but here we are. We're in the studio. We have a few announcements we want to start with. Obviously, big one, Cycling In Alignment is now live. We've had a few episodes on the Fast Talk channel, and the Cycling In Alignment channel also exists. So go over there and subscribe to Colby Pierce's new podcast where he talks both about the science and the philosophy of cycling. Yeah, so it's off on its own channel now, right? We're not going to be posting on Fast Talk anymore, so so please subscribe. Yeah. Or do we have a couple more that are going uh, up on Fast Talk? I think, Talk? you know, when, when it's appropriate, when he gets really into the science and it sort of fits with the Fast Talk philosophy of getting deep into the science, we'll, we'll run them on our program just to remind people that Colby knows his stuff. But yeah, for the most part, jump over there, subscribe there, and that's where people will get cycling in alignment. Great. So shall we dive into our questions? We got we a bunch. Should, we should. Yes. Let's get to the first one. And this one pertains to feeling flat during recovery. I know you love to talk about recovery, Trevor. This question comes from Nancy Tipton in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She writes, I train for endurance mountain bike races, 6, 12, and 24-hour formats, and she rides 10 to 15 hours a week in the season. My training is generally, quote, polarized in blocks of three build weeks followed by a recovery week. I generally feel flat during the recovery week. Is there something going on at a physiological level that explains this, or is it mental? And yes, I do love recovery. Yeah, that said, is... you should have seen my whoop score this morning. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> they, they, they rate it. So they have green, mm -hmm. yellow, red, and then what the hell is wrong with you? And you are well into the what <laughs> the was, hell is wrong with you. I was way down there. <laughs> and whoop, taking into consideration both the training that you've been doing, but also probably picking up on all the stress in your life. Sleep, heart rate Sleep, variability, it stuff. was all pretty tank this morning. Well, did you have some caffeine to wake up? Well, I am guzzling my tea right now. <laughs> there you go. Great. Still won't have coffee. I've never actually had a cup in my life. I don't know if I've ever said that on the show. I haven't either. Yeah, we Fist are just bump. odd. <laughs> Jana, don't, don't shake your head at us. You drink enough coffee for the 10 of us in this office, right? Wait, there's only three of us, but... She makes up for us. She makes up for us. So this is actually one of my favorite questions. The second article I ever wrote for Velo News, uh, which I still will say after seven years of writing, it, it kind of started high and all went downhill from there because <laughs> I'll still say this is possibly the best article I wrote on a relative scale. Wow. And uh, I'm trying to remember the exact title of the article, but it was, I think it was Running from Lions. Is this and one that I edited? I'm not or just even, before we kind of paired up on things. I'm not even sure you were working at Velo News yet. Oh, that's true. I might not have. You worked there a little bit before I did. Yep. yep. So this was a little before you got there. That's why it was so good. 
I didn't bash all your writing. There you go. You didn't edit it. I didn't edit it. <laughs> it was the raw form. <laughs> so just to the article, you have to remember that we were not designed for sports. We were designed to hunt, gather, and run away from lions, hence the title of the article. So when you are going really hard on the bike, when you are going at your limit, your body's not going, woohoo, I'm winning the race. Your body's going, damn, that's a big lion chasing me. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be dinner. Mm -hmm. So I am going to do everything possible to make sure you can run really hard. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to make sure that you can draw on all your resources and not let you worry right now about the damage you might be doing to yourself. So if you're doing a lot of hard work, if you're doing a, hard, a lot of hard racing, your body is now saying, we're getting chased by a lot of lions lately. Yeah, what's going on? Right. This is not the time to let you know that you're hurting. This is the time to support this. So physiologically, what's going on, and I'm going to simplify this because this gets into really complex biochemistry. Actually, I have a fantastic book, which I got partway through and really want to finish all on the whole biochemistry of this. Mm. But basically, we have a bunch of natural painkillers. Mm -hmm. Again, simplification, but one of the terms, if you want to throw it out at the group ride, is catecholamines. Uh, but when they get flowing, you don't feel a lot of pain. And to give you an idea of how good they make you feel, their receptors are what cocaine and a lot of your drugs mm -hmm. target. Mm -hmm. So... When you're going hard and you get those painkillers flowing, you're essentially on a little mini high, yeah. quite literally, but it's a, it's a natural, appropriate one. The problem is when they are flowing, your body isn't very good at repairing damage. It gets muted. So if your body is, and remember, you're doing a lot of high intensity work, which is getting these painkillers flowing, um, you are doing a lot of damage. So your body needs a period of time to clear out the painkillers, repair that damage. So if you have a rest week, and you can talk to anybody, who's, or if you've done a big training camp, you've probably experienced this. You finish your last, say you did a five-day camp and it ends on Sunday. You'll wake up Monday going, yeah, I'm kind of fatigued, but I could go again. I'm feeling okay. Right. I'm not that tired. Right. It's the painkillers are still in the system. Right. It's Tuesday or Wednesday where your body finally goes, all right, I'm not being chased by lions anymore. <laughs> yeah. Clears out the painkillers and you wake up one of those mornings feeling like you got hit by a truck. Mm -hmm. That's when your body's doing the repair. Yeah. When I actually have athletes doing a recovery week, I want them to feel that. Recovery weeks shouldn't feel good. Mm -hmm. They should actually feel pretty miserable. So after a big training camp, I'll tell my athletes, we're not even going to think about getting back to training until you've actually felt pretty lousy. Yeah. I want that morning where you wake up and feel like you got hit by a bus. Yeah. You see this in other ways in the, in the, in the body as well, whether it's a, a some type of injury or a, even a cut, like the, the, maybe the next day it doesn't feel as bad. It's the two or three days later where it really starts to throb right. and get irritated as the recovery process, different types of cells get to the, whether it's an infection or a cut or a repair that needs to take place, all of that activity starts to accumulate in a spot, and that's when you feel kind of at your worst. Yep. Well, you got inflammation going. Your body's trying to do repair work. So, yeah, that recovery week, you've cleared out a lot of the painkillers. Uh, so you're basically off of your high. Mm-hmm Your body's doing repair. You're going to feel flat. You're not going to feel overly motivated. Another thing to be aware of is when you talk about a peak in training, when you hit that peak, essentially what you're doing is manipulating those painkillers. So you're dropping the volume, you're getting good high-intensity work in. And my theory on this is it's a way to actually keep the painkillers flowing while still allowing enough time, even in that muted state, to do repair work. Mm that you go to a race with this combination of being repaired, right. but the painkillers are flowing. And the peak isn't so much that you magically got stronger. 
it's that you're on the painkiller high. So mm -hmm. your body's allowing you to not feel the pain, which is allowing you to go harder than you normally could. Interesting. That's a something to consider and something that probably takes some experimentation, as we know, when it comes to peaking yep. is, is riding that little bit of a wave of whether it's painkillers and, and some other things going on simultaneously and, and tapping into that and maximizing performance. Right. It's also why you have to be careful about a peak, because what do you do when you're suddenly putting out the best numbers of your life and feeling great? Yeah. You go and destroy yourself. Yeah. yeah. So you're doing all this damage. Your body isn't very good at repairing it, and you can't feel it. <laughs> and this is why people will have this amazing peak for a couple of weeks where they're putting out the best racing of their life, and then all of a sudden they fall apart. Yep. If they don't, if they don't back off at some point, they'll, they'll fall off the cliff. You talk to a very experienced athletes. They're good at getting a peak. They'll get a peak for a key event. And as soon as that event's over, they're like, I'm, I'm done. I take a break. And they know on the other side of that is this flat feeling mm -hmm. that, that our listener asked about. Mm -hmm. And that's hard for people to do. When you have a peak, you want to keep it going. Yep. But it's better to, to back off, let the body recover, and get back to training. Excellent. Okay. Well, uh, as we mentioned last time, we're no longer taking Google voicemails, but we are encouraging people to record voice memos on their phone and send them our way. So we've got one now from Preston Mui. I hope I got that right. And let's listen now. Hey, Chris and Trevor. Uh, this is Preston from California. I'm a low-level collegiate racer that's relatively new to endurance sport. I'm using the summer to try to get a lot of low intensity volume to build that aerobic engine to prepare for racing next spring, which are 30 to 40 minute crits and two to three hour road races. My question is about the length and frequency of endurance rides. I've heard people say that you should make your endurance ride the length of your longest race. Once I've done that, is it better to progress by extending the length of your slow rides or by doing more of them? I'm blessed with a flexible schedule this summer so I can make either work. Thanks. This is one of those questions where you're going to get a whole lot of opinion. So I'm going to give you my opinion, mm -hmm. but you could talk to five different coaches and you're probably going to get five different opinions. Yeah. Part of that's because I really haven't seen any research on this. Hence, we have to rely on opinion. We have to rely on experience. But this notion of your longest ride should be about the length of your longest race, or I've heard other people say it should be 125% of your, your mm -hmm. longest race. I personally, and I've been looking, mm -hmm. haven't seen a single study to back that up. I haven't yeah. seen any evidence. It's pure opinion. Yeah. And, I, and it's interesting because it differs between endurance sports, but it, it's all sort of based on maybe... Right beliefs and opinions and nothing backed really by hardcore science here. I think some of it goes back to there's this question of when you're talking about training, specificity yeah. versus physiological systems. So we've talked about this debate before. There are some coaches who are very big in training should be very specific to your event. And if you are all about specificity, then yes, your longest ride should be about the length of your, your longest race. I am much more on the camp of train the engine, build the engine, and then let the engine figure out the race. So the, the metaphor that I like to give people is, again, we're going to use a car analogy here, which we've been criticized for, uh -oh. but cars are, cars are simple. So it makes for easy analogies. And if you're talking about building a car to a specific event, you can take a Volkswagen and tailor it very specifically to a particular event, I would still rather just have a Ferrari mm. that, that isn't made for any particular event. Yeah. I think if you have a big engine, great body, you can do amazing things with it, and, and it can handle the event. So, so yeah, we're getting off, off topic. Yeah, Preston has kind of all the time in the world. He's this college yep. student. Nothing's going on right now. He can ride he's got a flexible schedule what what yep. should he do to get to that next level for, for for when racing returns so one thing i do need to add to what i was saying before is going back to this question i am very big on training physiological systems mm -hmm. so and again going back to the fundamental principle of training you need to have a stress to your body 
that your body can't normally tolerate that causes your body to adapt. So what is the right length to a ride? It is one that produces a stress. And if you go out at that LSD pace and you do two, you're an experienced cyclist and you do two hours, it's not going to stress you. And if you're a crit rider, that's still longer than your longest race. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. It's not going to really stress you. So you need to go long enough to where you're seeing a stress effect. And actually, Dr. Seiler has been doing some research in this and looks, he's been looking for markers. There is a certain point where if you're riding in that zone one, uh, where you start to see a physiological change showing that your body is, is reaching a point of stress. And that's a different point for everybody. So what is the right length ride? To me, it's where you hit that point and you go a little past it. For some people, that's three hours. How do you identify it? Just uh, through experience? It's mostly? experience. You can feel it. Uh, one of the indicators that you can use, um, provided you're hydrating right and it's not 100 degrees out, is looking at cardiac drift. Sure. So that's there's a certain point where your heart rate's going to go up relative to your power. Yep. That's often an indicator. Like hydration, Dehydration can cause that. So you do need to be careful, but assuming you're staying relatively hydrated, that's often a sign that you're starting to produce some muscle damage mm -hmm. and you're starting to lose some efficiency. So look for that point. We were just talking with Colby a couple days ago and he was talking about needing to kickstart, uh, was it Nathan Haas? Yeah. Sent Nathan Haas out for a 10 hour ride. Mm -hmm. That's, he doesn't do 10 hour races. <laughs> right. But, but he's, he's such a trained athlete exactly just kind of what he needed in terms of increasing your volume again this is a a big opinion thing of how much can you tolerate something you hear coaches throw out a lot this is what was told to me when i was trying to raise my level is year to year increase in volume about 120 to 125 percent of the previous year mm -hmm. so that's probably a good benchmark but where I'm going to go with this is it is always about balance between volume and recovery. So again, to give an example, if you are sitting on a beach in Hawaii with nothing to do, you could probably go out and train 20, 25 hours and come out of the week feeling yeah. relatively good. If you're on a week where work is really stressful, you're fighting with your spouse, the kids are yelling and screaming, Eight hours might kill you. Mm, you're describing my life to a T, Trevor. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, didn't you go out for a four-hour ride with Lachlan yesterday? <laughs> I did. So My wife encouraged me. Yes, which is good. So it depends. It depends on what else is going on in your life. And, and he correctly identified this. He's, he's on a bit of a furlough. He has more time to recover, so he can increase the volume. But... How much he can increase it is relative to how much recovery he can get. Sure. If he is just spending all day on the couch every day, he could probably increase it relatively significantly. Mm -hmm. So when I'm dealing with this with athletes, what I look for them to do is assess how they're feeling through the week. And if they've really increased the volume and they are feeling really tired all the time and, and perpetually fatigued, you go, it's probably too much. Yeah. If they increase the volume and they're going, yeah, I'm feeling still like I typically would coming out of a week, then it's probably appropriate. Yeah. Once again, it, it goes back to the notion that there is no single metric or number or any piece of data that you can look at and say, follow this line. It's a linear relationship. Right. Do that and you'll be okay. No, you have to listen to your own body. You have to assess some different... Um, sensations. You have to take in a lot of information and make some judgments on your own based on yourself, your situation, and so forth. The last little bit of that question was the increased length of rides versus increase the frequency of rides. Cycling is a bit of a unique sport where most other endurance sports, as they try to increase their overall volume, uh, athletes will add more workouts. And we'll never have particularly long workouts. So runners might run twice a day. Yeah. Uh, skiers, rowers, we'll, we'll all do multiple workouts through a day. Cycling is that rare sport where we just go, eh, I'm going to go out for a six, seven hour ride. Mm -hmm. There's good physiological arguments for both. I do think with cycling, you do need that periodic long ride. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, you can get, you, you can get a lot of your training just by 
doing uh, the, the, the multiple workouts. And that's a real change for me. I used to be very big on, no, if you're going to do five hours in a day, you do it all in one ride. But I've just been seeing increasingly more evidence, both in the research and with athletes who are, are getting great results with the, the doing the two a days. So uh, I, I am changing my opinion a bit on that. Mm. So if you're Preston um, or if you're working with Preston, and I know you don't like to just sort of um, deal with a single athlete in a vacuum without all the information and things, but would you tell him to do long rides uh, in a traditional way, so to speak, where he's riding long on Saturday and Sunday and fitting in other stuff during the weekdays? Or would you have him because it sounds like he can do long rides on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, or, or does it really go back to, it depends. I like to train in blocks. So if somebody has all the time in the world, like when I'm working with somebody that this is their job, I like the two, three day blocks. And I like to go from intensity to volume. So a good block might be do some interval work on Tuesday and now I'm talking let's high level pro yeah do some really high quality interval work on Tuesday um, do something a little lower quality on on Wednesday maybe if we're getting close to the season a little bit of sweet spot work go to get some climbing work in and then Thursday is go out and get that that five six hour ride mm -hmm. and then take a break on Friday and then do a two three day block Saturday through Sunday or, or Saturday through Monday mm-hmm the reason I do in that order, it's very hard when you're fatigued to do high quality. Yeah. So do the high quality when you're rested, mm -hmm. do the volume when you got a little fatigue in the system. Right. right. And that's how I've always liked to train, but I've seen a lot of different approaches. There's also arguments for if you're a stage racer, you need to learn how to do some interval work, do some, actually get some fatigue in the legs, then do some interval work to, to train your bodies how to handle that. So there's a lot of different variations. But I like the do two, three, or if you're top pro, even four-day block, then get a little recovery, and then more. And I like to finish it with that long ride. All right. Next question, and I know this is going to be another one that you're going to surprise some people with, maybe. Let's hope. This question comes from Jim Rutkowski, and it's about topical bicarbonate products, which are becoming much more popular these days. There's Amp Human, there's some other brands that I'm blanking on, but they're becoming more and more popular. So Jim's question is, I have a question about products like Amp Human. I tried it the other day on a mountain bike ride and it lives up to what it's advertised to do. I hardly felt any burn in my legs during the ride, although I was still limited by my fitness and was just as tired at the end of that as I would any ride without using the Amp Human lotion. So my question is, being the product buffers the burn from lactate, would that be detrimental for adaptation? I know the body needs inflammation to cause adaptations to train. Wouldn't this be the same with the body learning, quote unquote, adapting to buffer lactate buildup in the muscles? Say I'm doing a workout with three minute VO2 max intervals. Would it be better to just let my body adapt naturally or should I use the lotion to go at it a little harder intensity? Would it be better to use this product just during races and hard rides and not for specific high-intensity workouts? So, a lot to unpack there. Maybe we start with, I bet you've looked into the research on some of these topical bicarbonate products, and what is the research saying? Let me take a, a step back before I specifically get to topical bicarbonate, and I will try to find this, this uh, review but one of the big sports bodies actually did a review of all the different supplements, the research out that, that exist on the different types of supplements and categorized them into different levels from this definitely has performance benefits down to mm -hmm. this supplement belongs on a infomercial at 2 a.m. <laughs> telling you it's going to dramatically change your life yes. and ignore it. In the top category of definitely has benefits, there were three things. Mm -hmm. And I do remember we've talked about this mm -hmm. before on the show because we've talked about some of these yep. particular products. Yep. There were three. There was a conditional fourth. But the three, the absolute three, were caffeine, mm -hmm. definitely performance enhancing, but not beyond about 200 milligrams. Yep. 
So good the, to be clear about that. Yeah, the good old days when people are taking the thousand milligram supplement and and having a heart attack on the start line. <laughs> not so good. Not so good. Uh, creatine, but more for strength oriented mm-hmm. sports, not really beneficial to endurance sports. Mm-hmm. And the third was sodium bicarbonate. And again, very short lifespan. It, it was only really beneficial in events that were up to about eight minutes and you had to take it right before the event. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for rowing events, things like that, for track events, it could be beneficial for a prologue time trial. It could be beneficial for a five hour race. No. Yeah. The other issue with sodium bicarbonate is it causes a lot of digestive issues. Right. So you see uh, there, there, when, when this came out, a lot of people in the past went, Oh, this is going to be really beneficial. So they're taking, baking powder or whatever it was an hour before the race having all sorts of digestive issues where's that body by the time they actually got to the race all the benefits were gone yeah so they knew there was something to it but yeah yeah hard to hard to execute the one that was conditionally beneficial was l-glutamine and the reason it's conditional is because in a normal state we have enough L-glutamine in our bodies. We, we produce enough that you don't need to supplement with it. But if you are in a heavy endurance block, like at a stage race, or you're doing a big training camp, we can deplete our stores. So there is a ergogenic benefit to it when you are, when you are going really hard and depleting your natural sources. Going back to bicarbonate, the, the reason it is beneficial is when your body is producing acid. So when you are going hard and some, your, your anaerobic fibers, your, your fast twitch fibers are pumping hydrogen ions out into your blood, mm-hmm. your body has to buffer that somehow. And it has natural bicarbonate that allows it to buffer. So consuming some bicarbonate adds to your body's store of bicarbonate and that allows you to buffer the acid a little better. So it means at high intensities, above threshold intensity, you can go a little harder, a little longer. And that's been demonstrated. So again, the issue with consuming it, digestive issues, short life. Right. So, so these, being, these being topical, the, is the mechanism any different? Yes. And we actually looked into this, did some research on it, and I was very skeptical. I really thought putting on your skin, it's, you're not going to absorb it. This is kind of silly. It's not going to work. And then read a bunch of studies, and lo and behold, it's actually proven to be beneficial. So the nice sides about the topical ointment are, A, it lasts much longer because mm. it's slow absorbing. Gotcha. B, it never gets to your gut, so you don't have the digestive issues. Mm-hmm. So if you are going to... Let's say you're doing a crit or some sort of really high intensity event and you want a little bit more buffering. There seems to be something to these topical bicarbonate ointments. Right. Still new. The research is still new, but that seems to be where it's heading or what, what the direction it's pointing. And so they probably at this point, there's no uh, definitive answer as to how long it might have benefits. Whereas the, the um, oral version that you would eat or last what you said eight minutes this topical stuff because it's being absorbed more slowly maybe it's a half an hour maybe it's an hour we don't know yeah is that, is that yeah true? it lasts longer and i definitely read some studies that, that showed that uh and i'm trying to remember what they were showing but you were talking hour plus okay uh i read enough research to say there seems to be something to this that there does seem to be some benefits. Again, they need to do more research to really see how much, how long, all those questions. Mm -hmm. It's new. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that surprised me. I was really expecting to read the research and go, this is ridiculous, and and got kind of the opposite. (laughs) The curmudgeonly skeptic that Trevor is, he doesn't want to endorse any products. I'm not a huge supplement no, fan. No, I, I get it. I get it. I I understand completely. But so, it's good that it's good that you're also saying, well, hey, yeah. the science says 
that I'm not my 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 initial assumptions were wrong. So let's look into this. Let's see what benefits there are. You got to follow the the science. I'm going to be curmudgeonly and not use it myself. <laughs> sure. I also understand that. Hey, you said caffeine was one of the three that's proven to have effects. And well, there's other ways to get caffeine, but you're not the guy drinking coffee before every ride or race. You're just not going to do it. First ever NRC race I ever did. I bought a caffeine supplement. Uh-oh, here we go. To see if it would help me. Oh, didn't? For me personally, no, it did not. Okay. <laughs> but no, it, it has been proven to be beneficial. Yeah. Uh, I just found it made me feel really awful. Mm. And that was about it. Okay. But I'm also, I'm not a coffee drinker, so. Yeah. I think I've already told my story on here, but the first time I ever had caffeine was in college. Because <laughs> I didn't even drink Coke or Pepsi or any of those things as a kid. And I you pulled were raised by wolves. Pretty much. Yeah, no, I pulled an all-nighter. I had no work to do. I was just running up and down my dorm, knocking oh my on people's God. door, asking people to come play with me. It's too bad iPhones or camera, phones with cameras <laughs> it did would not have been funny. <laughs> yeah. In, back then in college, everybody had dry erase boards on their front doors yes. so that you could write notes on it because we couldn't text one another. So finally, when nobody would come out and play with me, I went to everybody's <laughs> door and drew pictures on their dry erase boards. <laughs> Wow. All right. So that's caffeine. Uh, that was <laughs> perhaps in that case performance enhancing. There you go. That's uh, true. You could look at it that way. So going back to the final part of his question of should you use this for a workout, that's a really good question. And I would love to see some research on this. Uh, so this is just brainstorming right now mm -hmm. because I haven't read any research on this. Yeah. Or very limited. Uh, I would say... It's not black and white, mm -hmm. but the fact of the matter is if it's allowing you to buffer better, it means that if you go out and do high intensity intervals, you can do them harder, you can do them longer. So that's a greater stress stimulus. Right. So there are potential gains to using it. His question though is if you are um, giving your body an exogenous bicarbonate, does that then have your prevent your body from right. building its own buffering capacities right. and there might actually be some legitimacy to that so i would say if you're doing work that's designed to help your body's natural buffering don't use it but that's yeah. not your really high intensity what time trialists do to build their buffering capacity is actually training just sub threshold right often at high at low cadence right if you're doing the really high intensity stuff that's probably not an issue. My bigger concern with doing it with uh, doing high intensity intervals with uh, topical bicarbonate is that it allows you to go so hard you push yourself over the edge. Right. Yeah. Well, it, that leads to a whole uh, other uh, list of issues that we we don't have time to get into. But yeah, I would I would fear the same thing. Like you're you just end up going so hard that the the workout becomes counterproductive. Right. In some way. Okay, what's Very the next good. question? The next question is all about the great subject of sugar. Comes from Ryan Bates in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He writes, I've read Dr. Robert Lustig's book, Fat Chance, where he lays out that refined sugar is basically poison. I don't remember all the biological mechanisms, but basically eating sugar without natural fiber from, say, a fruit or vegetable, to buffer its absorption into the bloodstream creates all kinds of problems. Over time, you become insulin tolerant, which is the route to diabetes and other mechanisms that cause your body to lay down adipose around the liver and belly. Okay, fair enough. He goes on and, and writes, Yet on long rides, we generally have to consume tons of refined sugar to replace lost carbs. During my five-hour ride over the weekend, for example, I consumed a bunch of sugary stuff I would never touch off the bike. Sports drinks, cookies, gels. He, he actually writes, I still bonked! Exclamation point. So here is the question. Do endurance athletes have to be concerned about the body-wrecking effects of refined sugar consumed during long, energy-depleting efforts? Does consuming refined sugar during exercise still have the same insulin sensitivity effects 
as when sedentary? Big question, Trevor. Where should we start? I'm going to start by saying this is an absolutely huge question and probably a really good one to do an episode on. I think so. We will. To answer this question, I'm just going to touch on a few things sure. without really getting into the the complexity, which is why I think this would be an absolutely great episode. So there's two sides to this question. One is the performance side. The other is the health side. So which one would you like to start with? Uh, let's start with performance. Okay. <laughs> So in terms of performance, absolutely this has been demonstrated. Uh, we've had Dr. Holly on the show talking specifically about this. We did have an, a, a whole episode on carbohydrates and performance. And it's pretty conclusive in the literature that if you are doing a, a sport that has high intensity in it, so a bike race, uh, yes, we can talk about all the fat burning when the field's going slow, but when you get towards the end of that race or if you're in a crit, you have to go really hard. And it has been shown that without proper glycogen stores, without the carbohydrates in your diet, you get blunted. You lose that ability to go really hard. So if you're a race across America rider, if you're Ironman triathlete, probably not as important and, and you don't have to focus as much on the carbohydrates as a bike racer no you you need them that's just where the research is at and for anybody that wants to listen to that episode with dr holly it's episode 23 way back in the time machine yes so then the second question for performance do you need to be having the giant pasta parties trying to force down 700 grams of carbohydrates a day, packing them wherever you can? Uh, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly not panning out. Uh, also, I will mention we, we recently had Dr. Eukendrup uh, on the show, and he talked about our absorption rates, and they're not that high. So uh, he he recommends consuming... 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour in an event. You can do the math on what that works out to. It's not a ton. Mm -hmm. Really, most people can't even absorb that. Yeah, that it takes some getting used to up, yep. getting up to that level, I should say. There are all these fancy products. And again, we're going to kill any potential for sponsorship here. But most of these products are just candy with better marketing. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they have a slightly better mix often of glucose to fructose to aid the absorption, but that's really about it. And this whole, the, the thing that caught my attention, Chris, you mentioned this as well, that caught your attention is bringing up this, we have to, right. he which uses, was in he, the question. He specifically uses those words, we have to, to consume tons of refined sugar. Well, that's not true. So that's the question. Do you? And I haven't seen the evidence for that. That's the belief. Mm -hmm. That's what's been pushed. That's certainly what's been marketed. I don't see the evidence for that. Yeah. There, You have to have some. You need to have some carbohydrates. But the evidence that you have to consume tons of refined sugars, just not there. Yeah. I have certainly noticed, I mean, I used to be one of those, so I'm talking anecdotally, uh, I used to be one of those consume seven to eight hundred grams of carbohydrates a day, and I got it through all refined sugars. I've now dropped down to consuming 150, 200 grams per day. So I'm certainly not going keto or anything like that. Yeah, uh, and I get it mostly through more natural sources. And if anything, my performance improved. It didn't go down. Yeah, and I've seen that with a lot of other athletes who have experienced the same thing and just said, you know what, we don't necessarily need it i've seen a lot of high level athletes that are making sure they're getting their carbohydrates but they aren't consuming the tons of refined sugars out on, on their rides certainly in a race it helps your digestive system's breaking down you don't want complex foods mm -hmm. so you when you're going that hard having something that's simpler helps certainly drink mixes help and you don't want to not do that in training and suddenly do it in a race. Yeah, yeah. That'll kill you. So you do need some in training. 
I think the the one thing to to be pointed out here is for some people it it might feel like they have to consume tons because their body is used right. to that and and is driven by that but with some experimentation and it's not even that much experimentation you could transition yourself off of a lot of this stuff this crap onto you know call it real food call it whole food call it just better foods and you do just fine especially on your long rides where you're going a bit mellower it's it's yep. a really pleasant thing to do instead of reaching for yet more gels or more crap like that remember any change to your diet your body is initially going to respond negatively to even a positive change yeah so that's kind of the catch-22 here is somebody will go oh i need to stop consuming less simple sugars which they've been consuming a lot of so they reduce it and then they start feeling crappy Mm -hmm. yeah that's going to happen in the short run but the question is after a few weeks where do you go? How do you, how do you feel after that? Yeah. Hopefully we will do this episode and then we'll bring in a lot of the research. Yeah. But anecdotally with myself, with a lot of my athletes, I try to have all of us get our carbohydrates through fruits and vegetables, uh, which are a little more complex, which have a lot of other nutrients to it. And once they adjust, you know, they, they recover better. It doesn't impact their recovery so you just don't really see that need. So short answer is yes. I don't think you can perform at your highest level without some carbohydrates. Sure. You don't need the tons and tons of simple sugar. Yeah. And this actually referred, made me think of Peter Vakoch's answer from the last Q&A episode that we did where he said, you know, at, he's a professional. He's, he's racing a lot, but right now being on lockdown, not not mm-hmm. uh, racing a lot. He sees this as an opportunity to sort of reset his system, go back to better, healthier sources of all the nutrients he needs. And, and I would encourage Ryan to maybe try that same thing right now if he can and get off of some of this stuff that he feels like his body needs or that, he, that his body relies on right now to transition off of that onto better s- sources of fuel. So do we want to tackle the other side, the, yeah, the health I think, side? I think we must. We must. It's a very, I mean, it's a, a critical component here, and it's obviously very complex, but let's touch upon it. Yep. So it is very complex. It is a long story. I think what might be interesting is just to give a little bit of the history. So back in the 50s and 60s, they started to do research on the effects of simple sugar on, on heart disease. And there was an increasing body of research, increasing number of studies showing that simple sugars does contribute to heart disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there were a lot of people in the food industry who didn't <laughs> like that. They didn't want that known. And so there was research funded in the 70s and early 80s by the, the sugar consortium and I know this all sounds very, very conspiratorial. conspiratorial. Right. I only ever bring this up because actually this was published, I believe it was in JAMA, but it was a very high, highly respected um, peer-reviewed journal looking at the communications mm-hmm. uh, and showing that the, basically the sugar industry didn't like this. So they hired some researchers to look at the effects, not to say sugar is bad, you know, good for the heart, but just to point the finger elsewhere, Put to it, look at fat. Yes, point that finger on and fat. And that research led to the trend in the 80s and 90s of fat is bad for you, high-carb diets. Low-fat everything. Low-fat Stouffer's dinners. Yes, and if you look at the trends in obesity in North America, it really, you, you saw it skyrocket when the, the recommendations became avoid fat, avoid fat, it's bad for you, it's bad for your heart, et cetera, et cetera, uh, because of that, a lot of that increased sugar consumption. I could go forever about all the different negative impacts. Simple sugar has been shown to contribute to inflammation, heart disease, cancer, autoimmune diseases, these are all inflammatory diseases. Mm-hmm. And there is now 
they're, they're going back and looking at the effects of sugar on these diseases, and, and the research is pretty damning. It's simple sugar is, is not good for you. Another, you know, just to give you a, a visual, table sugar, high fructose corn syrup are both high in fructose. Um, a lot of the, the junk food that you get is high in fructose. Fructose is different from glucose. It has different transporters. Your body absorbs it differently. It has its own unique transporters. And it goes directly to your liver. It's only in your liver that you can process fructose. So it's processing glycolysis. We talk about that all the time because your body uses glycolysis for uh, rapid energy. Mm -hmm. But where glucose goes through the entire process of glycolysis, fructose doesn't. Fructose enters about halfway in. It enters right below an enzyme called phosphofructose kinase, which is the rate limiter of, of glycolysis, which means that when fructose hits the liver, your liver processes it, processes it maximally, has no ability to control it. So if you consume a lot of fructose, it's all going to get processed, and then you end up with the end product of glycolysis, um, which then your, your body goes, well, what do I do with this? <laughs> and it's got a couple choices. One is it can pump it out of your cells as lactate. Uh, the other one is convert it to fat. And in recent years, you are seeing something that's never been seen before, which is all these children with fatty liver disease. Mm which 20, 30 years ago was something you only saw in middle-aged men who drank a lot. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the wonderful things that simple sugars do to you. Mm. Yuck. So as much as you can off the bike and at all times in your life when you're not needing those simple sugars to go really hard on a bike, you should be eating, you know, just eating as well as you can. Try not to take, let let the the cravings you might have on the bike carry over to everyday life. And bef before we move on to our next question, there is this uh, last question from our listener. Does consuming refined sugar during exercise still have the same insulin sensitivity effects as when sedentary? What's the short answer to that question, Trevor? Yeah, which is a really good question. So obviously the, the health impact that most people know about with sugar is the fact that it causes uh, uh, insulin insensitivity can lead to diabetes mm -hmm. if you overconsume. As a matter of fact, I've heard in the, the South, they actually refer to diabetes as getting the sugar. Mm. So when you are on the bike, when you are exercising and going hard, uh, your body, I've covered the, the full explanation behind this, I think, on previous episodes. So just the very short version. When you are going hard, your body essentially shuts down the insulin response. So if you consume simple sugars, insulin really isn't elevated. So you don't get that negative side effect. Likewise, I just talked about um, fructose. When you're sitting on the couch, your body's got nothing to do with that fructose. Mm. When you are training hard and you are depleting your glycogen, you're depleting your glucose stores, your body will start doing something called gluconeogenesis and basically convert it back to glucose and pump it out to your cells so that your cells can use it for fuel. So it doesn't just sit in your liver with your liver not one, you know, wondering what to do with it. Right, right. So you don't have quite as many negative effects, which is part of why I say when you're on the bike, some simple sugar is okay. Uh, but I would say definitely when you're off the bike, it's something to avoid. Yep, absolutely. Except cookies. <clears throat> or Swedish fish. I can't <laughs> believe you didn't bring up Swedish fish that whole conversation. Well, I know that you've sort of turned a corner. and, and um, Yes, I'm on to nerds. You're on to nerds. <laughs> Do you want to talk about your recent uh, experience with sugar, Trevor? Oh boy. Let's let's say Trevor isn't perfect. I am and not. And sometimes he has sugar too. But this is actually an example of what we were talking about of getting used to it. Yeah, this, um, the quote addictive properties here. It is very addictive. And we have been since we started up this business been working hard 
there's certainly a correlation between when you're stressed and sleep deprived that you don't eat as well, which I have been going through. Yeah, case study. So I have been letting my diet slip a little bit, and I was on a six-hour you know, six ride on Saturday and probably consumed about 1,100 calories of simple sugars that I shouldn't have consumed. And the whole time I'm sitting there going, I know I shouldn't, but screw it. Sometimes you just have to, right? Right. But I can tell you last year, getting ready for my target race, I was probably on the best form I've been on in four years. And I wasn't doing that at all. Yeah. I did a little bit the couple weeks leading into the race because I knew that uh, just for convenience sake, I was going to be using cliff blocks. Mm -hmm. as my fuel for the races so i just need to be i need to get my body adapted to it before the race but i was yeah. eating more complex foods and not eating the candy the whole build-up and right. i was best form i've been on in years yeah yep yeah there there's so many uh examples of not needing this stuff to perform at your best and and we've gone on at length about that in in different ways in different episodes but yeah, an episode upcoming on the topic of sugar as a whole will be would be great. So mm -hmm. I think we should do that. I agree. All right, let's get into our next question, which has to do with group rides and the polarized approach. It comes from Giancarlo Bianchi. He's actually from Boulder, Colorado. He writes, what are your thoughts on how a group ride fits into the polarized approach? Do they count as a day of intensity or as part of that 20% of sessions, as he says? If so, and say you do two group rides on the weekend, are you pretty much doing zone one training the rest of the week? Obviously, we're talking about a three-zone model here. This is actually a complex answer. I wrote him a reply, and I rewrote it twice, and I'm still not certain my reply made sense. <laughs> Because there are two important questions to ask if an athlete came to me and said, can I include group ride in my training? One is what type of group ride it is. Because there's the group ride that's supposed to be the training ride. And then there's the group ride that is just a flat out race. You just don't register for it. Yeah. So that's one question. Which is it? The second question is, are you trying to use this for effective training? Or is this your focus? So, for example, I coach an athlete right now who's never had a race license. Mm -hmm. He is competitive. He wants to perform really well. Never had a race license. His race is a Saturday morning group ride. My assumption here for Giancarlo's question would be he defines group rides as fast rides, not just social group rides. He's, right. he's, he's referring to group rides here and they sort of on the race side of things. And... I would say he's, he wants to know how to incorporate them into training because he's a racer. Right. So let's just start with dispelling a belief. I'm not going to say this never happens, but when somebody tells you, oh, there's this group ride going on, it's controlled, it's training pace, we don't race, <laughs> that's... Yeah close to delusional <laughs> right that just rarely exists on group rides group rides ego always comes out it always gets hard you hit a little climb people go hard you stop at some lights people sprint out of the lights it is rare that a group ride is a true steady controlled pace it's true and, and obviously not everybody in that group ride is built the same. So for one person, it might seem medium-paced. For another person, it might be super hard. Right. So the simplest version I'm going to give to the answer is if you are going to a group ride to get some base miles, bad idea. Yeah. It just isn't going to work out that way. It's going to be harder. You're going to tend to be in that in-between place. You're not. So if we're talking about the three-zone model... It's not zone one, it's not zone three, it averages out to zone two, but if you look at it, it's just little bits of all three all over the place. Yeah. And yeah. you know, my, person, right, my personal bias is I don't like that hit every system a little bit type training. Mm -hmm. So the group ride is just all over the map. And, and like I said, if it's a group ride, it's not a declared this is a training race but just the group ride 
it's probably also not hard enough to actually be really good high quality intensity mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's just this in-between thing that I don't think you get a lot of gains from. And I can tell you, I personally avoid them like the plague. If my athletes using them for training and they go to them, I usually have a talk with them. And if I can get athletes to stop doing that, you tend to see an improvement in their performance because mm -hmm. these are just, this is the black hole of in-between riding. If your goal is training, that's a really good thing to avoid. Mm -hmm. We'll get to a minute of, is that your focus? Is that what you love? And, and talk about how to, how to deal with that. Yeah. But for right now, if you're like, I need a good base miles training ride, I'm going to go the group ride. Don't do it. Rethink it. Yep. Let's talk about the other type, which is the training race. Yeah. And I think they can be great training, great high intensity. Often we can go harder than we would in any sort of interval session. They can be more fun. They're more exciting. And also they're a great lead in. If you are a, a, a licensed racer, they're a great way to get some intensity before the season, to get some race intensity before the season at low cost. Last thing you want to do is drive three hours to a race, pay $80 for it and get popped in the first 10 minutes because yeah. you got no racing in your legs yeah. where you can go to the local group ride, throw down for the three weeks leading up to that, get that race intensity and be ready for your event. So I think that can be great high intensity training, but it'd yes, be, it is high intensity. Yeah. It'd be fun to do an episode on the best training races in the country. Maybe it'd be cool to have our listeners send in their nominations for the best training races oh, that's in the a, U.S. That's a good question. So the, the three that I will call out? Yeah. Swamis mm -hmm. down in California. Yeah. That's one heck of a ride. The shootout in Tucson. And then, believe it or not, the oval ride in Fort Collins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are, uh, I have done training races all over the country or all over North America. Yeah. Those are the three that I look at as going, those just set the standards. They're legitimate training races, not this in-between stuff. Well, there's lots of legitimate training races, yeah, but yeah. those three are just yeah. at a level sure. of, yep. oh my God, I'm hanging on for dear life. This mm -hmm. is the hardest thing I've ever done. This is harder than the actual races I do Yep. type training races. Yep. They're fantastic. I will tell you, when I do a training race, that's actually what I look for. I don't go to a training race to train it smart. I go to it to train it hard. <laughs> sure. When I'm paying for a race and I care about it, I will race smart. Mm -hmm. But I actually, if I'm going to do a training race to get my legs ready for the race season, I want it to hurt more than a race does. Yeah, exactly. And try things too. It's a, yep. it's an opportunity to try things. If, if you're looking to do something different in a in a race environment, go to a training race first and try something out. And now there is, we should point out, there is this new opportunity, which I think is fantastic with the virtual racing, with mm -hmm. something like Zwift. Uh, the issue you still have with the training race or with races that you pay for is you get to try something, but if it fails, you're out the back. And it's another week before you can try something different. Mm-hmm. So I have an athlete right now that we are working on his tactics. We are working on his ability to navigate the field, be in the right place at the right time. Uh, lots of different sides of his strategy. So I've been getting on Zwift with him. And probably some people have been watching my Strava going, what the heck is going on? Well, what we've been doing is all sorts of practice. We join a race. Uh, we get to that critical moment. He tries something. It works or it doesn't work. Uh, then we pull out of that race and sure enough, there's another race five minutes later, <laughs> we jump into That's the next funny. race. Yeah. We try something different. We try something again. And we've had a few of these Saturdays where we've jumped into five, six different races. And in one morning got the sort of practice that used to take you six weeks. Yeah. Interesting. And his progress has been amazing. So there is these opportunities that really low risk. You don't have to leave your house. Yeah. And there's races going all the time. Push a few buttons, enter another race. Yep. So that's 
I want to explore that more, but that is a, a great opportunity to go get some really good intensity, get some practice. I mean, obviously, racing on Zwift is not quite the same as on the road. For example, you can ride through people. Don't yeah. try that out on the road. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Won't that's, go as well. That's bad race etiquette. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things you have in real racing, which is, is a valuable tactic, is the whole blocking, is the boxing people in. It's the sitting on the front so nobody can jump around. On Zwift, they yeah. just ride right through you. Yeah, they do need to work on that aspect of it. In my limited experience with Zwift, I already know, like, hey, I shouldn't be able to just barge my way right to the front by just pedaling. That would be really interesting if they built the ability to crash one another out well, into Zwift. <laughs> that's probably not too far away. I don't know. It would make for something different. But at the same time, it makes the racing a little bit harder. It makes it tougher. A lot of the tactics that you could pull to, when you're hurting, make the race easier, you can't pull. Mm -hmm. So again, as somebody who likes training races to really go and hurt myself, they're great. Yeah. Just don't overdo it, people. The whole doing six races in a row. I don't want to do that too many weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To, to get back to Giancarlo's question, I think the, the simple answer here... So his last question being, say you do two group rides on the weekend, and let's assume he means I'm going to go to these group rides and they're actually going to be training races. If he does that two days in a row, then yeah, the rest of his week should be pretty mellow, don't you think? Yes. To fit with a polarized approach. I'm also not huge on the do two training races Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, I mean, unless you're a bit much. stage racer and you want to get some practice with that, I would personally rather go on saturday hit the group ride destroy myself and then just get a good base miles ride on sunday do the big the big mountainous ride if you're near mountains just go up yep. and and uh do it that way when i was coaching up in toronto the group rides were very popular because train's not great so the way you can get your enjoyment is go out to the group ride and and i worked with a lot of athletes who were doing the two every weekend and often also doing one or two during the week. And you saw exactly what you would expect was it would turn into this in-between thing mm -hmm. where they would sort of go hard, not go really hard. And I remember going out to some of those weekend group rides. And even though it was a three-hour ride, uh, it was, again, kind of all over the map. And I apologize to all my Toronto friends who are listening to this right now and going, <laughs> what? Uh, the actual race portion was... 45-ish minutes, and you didn't see a lot of race tactics. It was much more, we're just going to ramp up the pace of a group ride to hard, but nobody was attacking, nobody was pulling tactics, and that was because, I think a lot of that was because you were seeing the fatigue in the legs. Mm -hmm. Yep. So every once in a while, some of the local pros would show up, and what you would see them do is they would, our ride was earlier, our ride was called, the. so here's the theme in Toronto, they had the donut was the original Toronto ride. The ride that I did a lot was the bagel. <laughs> uh, then they had the croissant, which was the easy group ride, and, and it just kept going down from there. Uh, but a lot of the pros would come to the bagel, go and hit that kind of hard, and then if you it was you could time it. As soon as the you, you hit the end of the racing portion of the bagel, you could beeline over, catch the donut, and then race the donut. And then all of a sudden you had something where you were getting a lot of good intensity, you were getting a good hard workout, and it was valuable. But I wouldn't see them do that two days in a row. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps that's a, a poor assumption on my part to, to believe that John Carl is asking to do two training races on a weekend, but we covered all our bases by answering it in a lot of different ways. So I hope that helps John. Carver. Well, there is one other. So we did, we talked about using it for training. Yeah. Now let's talk about, this is your focus. Okay. Like my athlete. Yeah. Uh, you have to have some fun. Sure. And for you riding with other people is a lot of fun. And we're telling you ride solo all the time. Yeah. Then you're not really going to enjoy it. So and again, is, is your enjoyment the training race or is your enjoyment the, the group ride? If your enjoyment's the group ride, you just like to go out with people, then yeah, you got to have your fun, but it's not high quality training. So 
I wouldn't say do that every day. I would say pick once or twice a week that you do that, except that you're not going to hit the sort of fitness that you could have hit, uh, but you enjoy this. You enjoy riding with some people and make the rest of your week valuable. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can do things like limit the, the portion with the group, find ways to make it hard, or you can do unique things like go do some intervals and then hit the group ride or do some intervals after the group ride so you yeah. can call it your high intensity day or ride with them for an hour and then separate and go do some good zone one training. Right. Lots of different ways, but just accept the fact that this, that portion is you're doing it for enjoyment, not for the quality of the training. Right. If your focus is the training race, like my one athlete, the Saturday morning group ride, the donut ride up in Toronto, that is his event. Mm -hmm. Then we don't use it all year round. I don't have him going to it in December. So we treat it like a race season. And when he's going to it, we treat it like a race. We do race prep for it. We build the week around it. And then that event, it's not about what's the portion of training. It's not about how to, to, get, to optimize it for training. It's this is your race. Go race it. And we'll figure out the rest of the week. Yeah. Our next question comes from Gina Jackson, who I must note is originally from the great nation of Canada, but now lives in southern Germany. She writes, I'm a longtime runner turned triathlete. Over the past few years of tri training, I've noticed that my heart rate when cycling is significantly lower than my heart rate when running for a given RPE. For example, my average heart rate during a 20-minute cycling FTP test is about 12 beats lower than a 20-minute running time trial, even when subjectively I'm the same amount of almost dead at the end. I've read that this is common, but I was wondering if you could explain why. And perhaps more importantly, does it matter? I'm sure there are other factors, but I'm just going to give the, the simple main answer, uh, which is in running you're using more muscles. So if you think about it, if you're positioned well on your bike, your legs are doing a lot of work, but your upper body should be fairly relaxed and you're really just using your arms to support a little bit of weight. And like I said, if you're positioned well, that's pretty minimal. So it's all in your legs and your legs can only demand so much blood. Right. When you are running, you use your arms. So you have more muscle tissue that is requiring blood so your heart has to beat faster for the same sort of perceived effort. And this is part of the reason you look at cross-country skiers who really use their arms. Right. You see the highest VO2 max values in cross-country skiers mm -hmm. uh, because of that need for blood flow. So a lot of the good training software out there will actually allow you to have cycling and running heart rate zones, accounting for the fact that, yes, she is right. Uh, generally for running for the, the same relative intensity you're going to be higher up to, to 10 beats per minute higher that was another episode of Fast Talk as always we love your feedback email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it our way subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Coach Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.